Welcome to the Investing Tutor Podcast, the show for professionals looking to master the most up-to-date strategies needed to build wealth and provide a stable financial future. Here's your host, Dr. Hans Boateng. Joining us on today's podcast episode is a repeat guest. He recently just launched his book, which is currently a bestseller on Amazon, Burning to Blueprint. So we're having Kevin Matthews II. For those that know, he is now a three-time author, former financial advisor, and he was ranked one of the top 100 most influential financial advisors in the country. He's managed over $140 million in assets. He's the founder of Building Bread. You all wanted to get Kevin on so that we can talk about his new book and a, t- and a subject that I'm super passionate about, cryptocurrency. So without further ado, help me welcome Kevin Matthews. Brother, welcome. Thank you. That was such an excellent intro. I really appreciate that. <laughs> always, always an honor. Um, let's see, where'd we start? So what inspired you to write this book? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was known as Black Wall Street. And the history of Black Wall Street has been primarily forgotten, purposely ignored, and suppressed for almost 100 years. And with the world's attention going to be on Tulsa in just a few days, it it was really important for me to give my perspective, not just on the history, but about wealth building, about generational wealth, and about the importance of investing and building your future. So that, that for me was a message that I had not seen before. There are plenty of books, plenty of excellent books that talk about the history, but you're not going to find one that talks about the finances of it from someone who's worked on Wall Street and is looking to rebuild Black Wall Street. Yeah, it's often a topic that is not discussed enough. You know, Black Wall Street, you know, what are care there. What I find fascinating about your book is how you kind of share kind of like the background, the history, and then you transition into how to rebuild, right, Black Wall Street. So do you kind of want to give us, I guess, an overall kind of um, highlight of some of the strategies around the way that you believe that individuals, right, minorities can, you know, generate wealth and in essence help rebuild or recreate that wealth that we had, you know, before all of, you know, the massacre and everything. Yeah. So I I see the rebuilding of Black Wall Street falling into three buckets. You have the the regulatory bucket where we can and should pass some form of reparations, but that's not necessarily on an individual level. So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is the individual level where 
we learn how to invest, we'll, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies. That's one way to do that as well. Your 401k, the stock market, so on and so forth. So you have the individual bucket. And then the last is a community bucket. And I think that's one that we don't talk about enough across the entire diaspora. Some um, African-American cultures or even Caribbean cultures do this in some places, but I think we could do a better job of implementing that uh, nationwide. So for example, it's making sure that the pa- the places that you buy your goods from also hire Black people and that that company also puts their money in a Black bank. So it's like that, that three layers. So again, it's the, the regulatory bucket, the individual bucket, doing what you can in your household with your 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 wealth, and then the community bucket where we pull our resources and our attention together to ensure that the places that we all spend money on also return that money back to the community. So the burning of Black Wall Street, for anyone who's listening who is perhaps new to this, can you summarize what occurred and you know how the government reacted back then? to the incident. Yeah, so I'll start I'll start by saying this. So in the early 1920s, Tulsa, Oklahoma, pretty much in the center of the country was a safe haven for African Americans. It was Booker T Washington who called it at the time Negro Wall Street, one of the wealthiest communities, wealthiest black communities in the country, but more importantly what made Tulsa stand out more than than Atlanta at the time or or Greensboro and other other areas was that in Tulsa you could there, there was a social mobility factor that you could come here as a sharecropper and leave a millionaire that you could come here as a teacher and and own plots of land and do incredible things from from nothing because at that time the economy for for black folk the opportunities weren't there um, in most places. So after several years of, of Black people having made progress in this region, um, we have had what was called the Tulsa Race Massacre that started on May 31st of 1921. The spark of this, and there are a bunch of, you can get the book to, to really get like what was happening right before, but essentially um, there was a man named Dick Rowland who stumbled onto an elevator with a white woman named Sarah Page. She screamed and the newspapers took that and ran off with it and said it was a sexual assault. So he was then arrested. A white mob uh, gathered at the courthouse where he was held. A struggle broke out between a crowd of black men that was there to protect him and the white mob. That mob then burned down more than 35 city blocks, killed more than 300 people, and essentially wiped Black Wall Street off the map. And what was the government's response to this? Yeah, that part. (laughs) So (laughs) the... Because it, whew. so I, I, it there's there's so much gravity to it for a few mm. reasons. So number one, I like when I say I'm from here, I'm from here, and we didn't really start to study what happened until 2001. So we're we're talking just the last 20 years, we're finding out information. So uh, one of the very first things the government did was they actually deputized members of the mob, meaning that as this this massacre was taking place that they said, you know, here, the actual sheriff's department, the police department, giving out guns, giving kind of makeshift badges and arm armbands saying, get out there and, and do what you, what you do. And that's the, the local city government allowing people to, to do this to African-Americans. So that's number one. Um, number two, 
48 hours after there was um, what was called the Tulsa Real Estate Exchange attempted to pass a fire code to prevent African-Americans from rebuilding on any land that was burned, um, essentially saying that you need to make it out of super expensive material, even though we just burned down all of your assets, um, which made it really, really difficult for, for the area to rebuild. So those were two of the very, very early things. And then even to this day, uh, the city of Tulsa has not paid out any a dime, not a dime in reparations. And the city of Tulsa just now, well, actually in 20, 2019, they just began the process for finding the more than 300 bodies that were um, rumored to be found um, in, in mass graves. So we just started digging in 2019, not, not 2029, 2019. We just started digging. Um, so the government of the local government, the state government pretty much ignored it. It wasn't required in schools up, up until last year. And the government sanctioned um, a lot of that violence at that point in time. Wow. Now on an, whew, I think that just the gravity of of the information, right? Mm-hmm. What was the spark or the inspiration behind just going back to, you know, perform this research, write this book, right? Because I know you are in the personal finance space. So ideally, if you are writing a book, it would be one hundred percent focused on either the stock market. Um, you know, financial markets, crypto markets, but you chose to begin or to focus this piece of work on the history of Black Wall Street and then going from just the history to providing, let's call them like solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Even at the individual level. I'm just curious, what was the inspiration behind or what inspired you? to 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 create this piece of work yeah i would say especially for the solutions number one i'm just a solutions oriented person where i understand i want to understand the problem i want to understand the history but what do we do now and for my entire time growing up and even in the research process i came across tons and tons of really great resources that said this is what happened here's how bad it was but i didn't find many that said what do you do now? What do we do with this information? And I think that that has always been my biggest problem is that, okay, great. I understand the history. I understand the gravity of what happened, but what do we do now? But I think also growing up in, in this region that there were still so many things that we, we'd never recovered. And I grew up always asking myself, what if the Dreamland Theater was still there? So for example, there were two movie theaters, there were uh, multiple hospitals on in Greenwood and the, the African-American side of town. And we still don't have a lot of that. There were dozens of grocery stores where people could eat fresh foods on the black side of town. We just opened a new grocery store two weeks ago, two weeks ago. We just got a, our first grocery store in years. And to, to have, to have been one of the wealthiest areas in the country and then 100 years later, still struggle for basic things. Like there is no movie theater on this side of town. We, again, we just now got a grocery store. Um, there aren't many, any hospitals on this side of town. You know, it, it's, it's like, how do you, how do you go from the wealthiest community or one of the wealthiest communities rather to one of the poorest and it, it never really seemed to recover in the way that we, that we once did. So 
my entire life, I've been asking that question. Like, how do we get back to that? How, how is it that no one, not a single person has been able to, to do X, Y, and Z since uh, the 1920s? And I wanted to make sure that we have some, some path and some way to, to get back to that, that level of wealth. Absolutely. And in one of the solutions that was provided in the book, right, you highlighted the stock market and how equitable it is, right? You know, the truth is when you compare the stock market to the real estate market, you compare it to the job market, there are instances where individuals are discriminated against because of, you know, the color of their skin, nationality, right? We could go on and on. And you and I know that the stock market doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> when it comes to a stock like Apple stock, mm-hmm. we all get the exact same return. So if there is this market that is fair, equitable, I'm just curious why most minorities are not taught more about this, right? Because this is where we can kind of level the playing field. This is where we can really build wealth. And sometimes I just try to think like, why is it that we don't know enough about the stock market? Um, have you Have you thought about that? Yeah, I've I've definitely thought about it. I've had people ask me about it from time to time. I think a big part of it is exposure in that I I think the stat is there less than 5% of all financial advisors in the U.S. are black, less than five, which means that, you know, you don't you don't get a chance to run into people who talk about this at home or at a family reunion or just a guy in the family. Right. So as, as you know, Uh, with us being in the the stock market area, anybody who is within earshot of us is going to hear about the market one way or another. (laughs) And by default, you know, you, they're more likely to open up an app and do research and at least be cognizant of what's going on. And when you don't see as many people in that space, then it's going to be a lot more unfamiliar to you. So that's, that's number one. I think the other part of it is the history and level of mistrust that a lot of our community has had with banking institutions, which by default spills over into um, financial institutions just by default. But I think the last and most important one is the lack of access. So for example, for me, when I was an an advisor and I was managing millions, at one point, once I had gotten maybe two or three years into my career, I could only have clients that had $250,000 or more. That was it. And it wasn't I didn't get the opportunities that I wanted to help people start from the ground up. So if I you know, had a, a new couple, they just got married, they're paying off the student loans and want to learn how to invest. They've only got $2,000. They couldn't even touch my office. And I think that that's the market that we need to be talking to because that's the market that has the most gross potential and the, the, the eagerness to start to invest. Um, so, you know, thankfully, for better or worse, you know, there's Robinhood that's out there. Fidelity is starting to do fractional shares. Like it's a way, it's way more accessible now than what it ever was. So I think that, that access is changing things. We already know from 2020 that it was a, the highest activity for African-Americans on record ever. So I think the, the tide is changing. These podcasts are working. The things, the work that you do is, 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 is helping. 
Um, but I think access, seeing yourself in this business, uh, and then the the level of mistrust that we've had in the past, i.e. Wells Fargo, um, those have, have been some of the, the barriers. One of the chapters in your book uh, talked about the price of racism. Can you, you know, share that with my audience? Yeah. So racism in the last 10 years has cost the United States $16 trillion with a T. $16 trillion is the cost that um, that Citibank um, estimated for the cost of racism. And when we talk about the cost of racism, this this is loans that have been denied for, for African-Americans for, for qualified loans, which means that if I can't get a qualified loan for my home, then the realtor isn't able to sell that home to me. And if my home is devalued, that's less money that the government can collect in taxes. That goes back to a realtor, realtor that doesn't get to get that sale, um, to the, the job that I'm not getting paid enough at. And that type of stuff adds up. Um, so we're talking less tax base, less sales. If I am making less, even with the same credentials as, as someone else, then the local Walmart or the beauty store or what, what have you uh, in my area, they lose money because they could have gotten more money from me if I had more money. Um, so we, we don't always talk about the pay gap and what it costs. Now, we talk about the individual, but we don't, we don't talk about the broader economy. So whether it's real estate, whether it's car sales, um, retail, it, when you add that up, it, it costs $16 trillion in just the last 10 years just the last 10 years. And again, that's not that I, I calculated on my own. That was that was from um, from Citigroup. And it just shows you how detrimental um, the cost of racism can be because it's, it's not just uh, a singular factor where it only affects a certain group of people. It actually affects everyone. Wow. that That's a lot of money, right? <laughs> it for, is. For individuals who don't know that, you know, US GDP or the amount of economic activity that happens in, let's say, a single year is roughly about $20 trillion, right? So over a 10-year mm-hmm. period, I mean, with the cost of racism being $16 trillion, <laughs> you are, that's a lot of money. Wow. Yeah, I hope some work is, is done around all of this. Um, from racism to discrimination to, you know, um, just with even real estate, when they are coming to appraise homes for minorities and (laughs) you see lower home values being, you know, their homes being appraised for lower lower values. And in essence, that then impacts, right, that couple or that individual, the cycle just keeps repeating. It it does. And it, it compounds in ways that a lot of times we don't always pay attention to or that we don't see in our faces. And, and one one correction is actually the past 20 years, not the past 10. So the past 20 years, it's cost us 16 trillion, which is still astounding because we're not talking 100 years. We're just talking the last 20. Yeah, the last um, 20 years. I mean, yeah, $16 so trillion dollars is a 16 lot trillion. of money. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a ton. But for example, you know, when we when African-Americans are paid less, remember that that money, where, depending on where you live, a lot of times that funds school districts. Right. Which funds what you're learning in school. Well, if your school district isn't being funded, if you're not being paid the same, 
you're not paying the same taxes. So that's a gap in and of itself. So we're talking a $23 billion gap in school funding, which means that you're not receiving the same education, which means you're probably not going to get the same scholarship, which means that you're going to end up with more student loan debt, which then prevents you from building wealth at the same rate as everyone else. And it's it's those things that you don't you don't really see it. You just go to school and that's kind of it, right? Um, but we have to we have to address those systemic things because it starts to build up on each other. All these things are connected, and again, it costs us as a nation, not just this one group of people. This is an incredible segue into why I am a big advocate. Um, in 2016, I was a big advocate for individuals having an allocation to individual stocks. Mm-hmm. At that time, everyone thought it was crazy. Why would you invest in individual stocks when you can just buy only an index? <laughs> right. Now, fast forward to 2020 or 2021. Most people now understand that it's smart, intelligent, and important to have allocation to individual stocks. (laughs) (laughs) But what is, in quotes, now controversial is exposure to crypto assets. So I know what the process is like, Kevin, because I went through that kind of process myself. Before 2017, I used to say, you know, crypto is a scam. Bitcoin is a scam. What is this thing? It doesn't make any sense, right? I used to say that. (laughs) And in 2017, something happened which um, stopped me in my tracks. And it was Peter Thiel, right? The individual Mm -hmm. who invested in Facebook, PayPal, you know, all of the top tech companies that went on to become multi-trillion dollar, you know, and and some of them worth hundreds of billions of dollars. This individual was putting together a group of his Silicon Valley buddies, and they were investing several billions of dollars into crypto, specifically, Mm -hmm. you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a few others. And I, it, it, Stopped me in my tracks. I was like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) And as I looked closer, I realized that, wow, maybe this is the next big thing. Just like the internet in 1995, 1997, crypto is that new thing which over the next decade or two could build a tremendous amount of wealth. But per usual, right? People in our community, we have no clue what's going on. We're being fed ridiculous information by the media. And as a result, many people are, uh, you know, scared, intimidated to even get some form of exposure. So I share all of that to say, you know, take me back to when you were kind of like me saying, this is like, it's, maybe it's a scam or it's too volatile or you don't know what that what this Bitcoin or crypto thing is to what then got you over that fence to you know perhaps begin looking at crypto you know why did you if if you've purchased any why did you buy right and if you wanted to share one or two crypto assets that you own and why those in particular 
Excellent, excellent question. And the funny thing is, because we, this is our first time talking about it in this way. And I had a very similar realization. So funny story is in 2011, I had a guy who, so I taught um, in, in Dallas, Texas. I'm in the teacher's lounge and I'm, I'm minding my own business. So this guy walks up to me and he's like, tell me about this thing called Bitcoin. It can do this and do that. And at the time people are using it for shady stuff, but it's super, super cheap. And I remember at that point in time, I said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Go away. <laughs> and I just, I had never heard of it again. I had never heard the word Bitcoin from 2011 until 2017 when everybody was talking about it. And at that time, like you said, I was, I was very similar in that if you don't understand it, you don't need to be doing this. Uh, we don't know where it's coming from. It's a, it's a bubble. It's, this is extremely dangerous. And it was at that point in time because it crashed what 89% or so the very next year. So in, in a sense, we were correct um, in that at that point in time. But things have changed. I think in finance, you always have to update your views or your opinions on a periodic basis because what a company was or what a cryptocurrency was five years ago is very different today because the world has changed at that, that point in time. And what changed it for me, similar to you, is when I started to see companies like PayPal and Square and Goldman Sachs starting to open up and say, we're going to buy certain assets or uh, we're going to buy into Bitcoin at this level. We're going to start allowing our investors to buy into it. That told me that they have what I call institutional support in that I'm not going out here and risking my tail. I know that they've got people on payroll that are paid not to make really, really bad mistakes. Whereas people on, on Reddit and Facebook and wherever, they don't care. <laughs> They're just going to go out and say whatever. <laughs> um, they have no, they have no, no, no recourse for that. Um, so once I started to say, to, to do that, to see that, that's when I came out in late 2020 and said, look, I'm, I'm going to buy Bitcoin. And since then I've, gotten an allocation for Bitcoin. I have some Ethereum and now some Cardano. Um, I think for the average investor, it does make sense to have some. I, I do think still though, it is important to manage your risk in that, you know, having some is great. I think that's, I think most people should do that, but having 90% of your money in one, that might not be the best thing. Um, so just like you wouldn't put all your baskets, your all your eggs in one basket for a stock, you don't want to do the same for crypto. And you do definitely want to be aware of how crypto moves differently than the stock market, which if you don't know that, you do want to make sure you do your, do your research because Bitcoin in and of itself experiences 60, 70% dips every two to three years. If you know that, that's fine. Now, if you don't know that, that's something that you want to be uh, braced for and be okay with before you go into something like that. So are you holding your crypto as a multi-generational asset. What what is your strategy? Yeah, I would I would say it's, it's more of the multi-generational asset. For me, I'm I think I'm on a weekly um so DCA dollar cost averaging. So I'm I'm putting in money every week, every two weeks, and I don't plan on touching it. It's it's going to be there. I'm not I'm not concerned about the dips. I'm not concerned about the regulation. I even think these potential regulation threats, even from the U.S., I think are actually in the long run good things. Uh, it's not going to feel great in the short term. We've seen Bitcoin drop from sixty thousand down to thirty thousand in 
to wherever it is by the time that people are listening to this. So for me, I'm, I, I saw it as a gift. I, I saw you you posted something about that recently where, look, this is a gift that is it's this cheap because it won't be this cheap here pretty soon. No. And I think that's I think that's accurate. So for me, you know, whether it's every Friday, every other Friday, I'm grabbing me some. I'm leaving it alone. And I'm going to allow it to, to grow and build well for me, my kids and their kids, too. Absolutely. You know, I am incredibly passionate about crypto because it's almost like for me, the writing is on the wall in terms of like, this is an asset, which by comparison, so, you know, some individuals who say Bitcoin is like digital gold, right? Well, currently, Bitcoin is worth give and take, let's say, 700 billion or 600 billion after the decline, right? Well, gold, if you look at the total uh, you know, value of, of, of gold in circulation, right, in terms of the entire e- economy, not just the US, the world economy, I think it's pegged at about $10 trillion. So then you look at Bitcoin, which is worth, let's say, $700 billion. For those who want to quickly do an easy math in their head, you can say it's worth $1 trillion. So in essence, at the very least, assuming that Bitcoin is comparable to gold in terms of an asset, that means ideally at some point in its existence, it should be worth $10 trillion at the very least. But in my mind, I'm like, well, what if Bitcoin is two times as better than gold, right? Or it's twice um, in terms of its functionality, twice as better. Well, then we're looking at a $20 trillion asset which in my mind, if we're looking at Bitcoin at close to $1 trillion, in my mind, I'm doing the math. I'm like, wow, if, if this literally plays out, there's a 20x opportunity at some point in the future. For me, I'm not sitting down saying it could be next five years or next 10 years. It's just that that opportunity exists. And it is absolutely mind-blowing that we get the opportunity to buy into such an asset. I was just talking about this um, this afternoon. Kevin, do you realize that if a new company is, is coming to market, the only time we get access to that company is when it goes public, right? We don't get access to it at the early stage. But Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies... It's always been available to any and everyone. Like, it's just absolutely mind blowing. (laughs) And it just creates this equitable opportunity for any and everyone to be able to get some form of exposure, to your point, understanding the risk, the volatility involved. In my opinion, having a long term buy and hold type approach. Right, individuals who are really, you know, risk averse, meaning you don't like risk, you know, a less than three percent allocation, right? Individuals who are more comfortable with risk, 
you know, anywhere between, you know, three to 10%. Obviously, individuals have to make their decision on where they want to be. <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but uh, I began with either like a five or 10% uh, allocation. And all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's like 30% now, not because I did anything, but because of the growth. <laughs> right, which is, which is a good problem to have. <laughs> like it's, it's so fascinating. And so I, I often tell people that, hey, you can allocate even 1% to Bitcoin if you don't like risk at all, right? Because 1%, you're not going to care about a 1% if, if you lose it. But if Bitcoin does what it's supposed to do and Bitcoin grows by 10 or 20x, all of a sudden it's worth 10 or 20% of a person's portfolio, which is crazy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, it's, it's just fascinating to see. Um, anyways, in, in wrapping up, um, Kevin, how do you see this um, this? crypto space evolving, right? You mentioned Cardano. The fascinating thing that I see about Cardano is the ability to um, kind of track grades or degrees on on the Cardano blockchain. Also a way to like create individual credit, like credit scores, that are universally available to any and everyone. Like such ideas just, it, it, I can't even sit still when I like think about a world where we are not beholden to centralized institutions and that anyone anywhere can look at this person's track record which has been placed on a blockchain technology. So when you're looking at, oh, like this person pays their bills, you know you know that there's no error and, and individuals can fund you. It's just such, it's mind-blowing to me. I, I don't know. Have you thought about all of these and how do you feel? Yeah, so I, I feel a lot of things <laughs> about it because, so something something like a Cardano, which is, some would say more useful than than a Bitcoin and others. Um, I'm excited because it's a new frontier and it is an opportunity. And with the right allocation and exposure to it, you can be in on what is essentially the ground floor. I think the concern, the concern for me is not volatility. That that doesn't concern me because my allocation, I'm working and trying to, you know, slowly getting to that 3% allocation. I think five is going to be my max for now until we start to learn more. But my thing is, is this, the difference between Bitcoin is, so I, like you said, like everyone calls Bitcoin digital gold. The problem is you can't go out and create an alternative to gold tomorrow. And I think in the crypto space, not that there's you can just create another Bitcoin tomorrow, but for example, when when Doge was hot, right? When Doge started to fall off, all of a sudden people started learning about Shiba Inu, which is a play on Doge, and that did some things, right? So at what point one of these of, of the dozens that are out there, one of them is going to be MySpace, one of them is going to be Facebook, and then one's going to be somewhere in between. So it's figuring out 
which one of these is going to be that that one? Is it Cardano? Is it Bitcoin? Is it already there? And what is to prevent someone else from creating the next big thing? And I would say, lastly, the other concern there is you don't want one person via tweet to to tank the entire market. I think that's a that's that's one thing we're all slightly concerned about. But other than those risks, because there are risks everywhere, is the excitement about what this can do and what it could mean, not now, not in 2021, but in 2025, 2030. And I think that's the the biggest factor for me is to be able to say that I bought something that had some some value, I held on to it, and it absolutely changed my life. And I think that's that's the power of of what crypto could do. And I think as as we're both on the same page, it makes sense to have some allocation. It makes sense to to really study up and decide what you're going to do. But looking back on it, just like those who who may have held since 2017, oh, they're happy now, right? Even with the dips, um, this is this is that opportunity for everyone. And the fact, like you said, that it's decentralized, that we can all have access to it at the same time, you don't even get that in the stock market, right? People who who invested in Coinbase before it was public, those are the ones that got rich. Now it's our turn. This is our ability and our chance to do this because the, the banks can't move as fast as we can as individuals. And I think this is kind of where the, the tables turn and where the, the tables can be not only flipped, but finally equalized to some degree. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, like, how far you've, you've gone down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, and I know you've been writing your book, so it's probably kept you super busy. <laughs> but ooh, brother, like the more you you understand Bitcoin, um, the more that you just get sucked in. <laughs> it's it's so incredible of a technology, right? Because it is the first time that anyone anywhere who has access to a smartphone or or, or a computer can transfer something of value to someone anywhere who has a smartphone or a laptop. So then all of a sudden commerce changes altogether, right? It just changes. Someone might have an idea for a business, right? Back then you needed to go to Silicon Valley to go get funding. Now, that individual, regardless of what city, country that you're in, if you have the credentials and the track record that proves that you are someone who is, you know, can deliver, and all of a sudden you are raising funds, it is globally available to any and everyone, and they can transact in that one currency, right? Like you begin to think about all of these things and it's like, wow. Like today, for example, um, I just actually signed up for the Miami Bitcoin conference. <laughs> and uh, the oh, well, found- well, first, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I did not know that there was a Bitcoin conference. <laughs> <laughs> I've been eyeing it for a while, but I was like, hmm, should I go? Should I not go? And, and, after seeing the lineup of, of people, I was like, you know what? I think it's 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 a good write-off. 
So worst, then, worst case scenario, we get we get a trip out of it. One hundred percent. So I'll I'll be attending, and they actually priced the conference in a very fascinating way. If you pay with Bitcoin, you pay six hundred dollars less. <laughs> Oh, interesting. To attend the conference. Look at that. Like you pay $600 less. So this was the first time that I got to transact using Bitcoin. So literally this evening was my experience with Bitcoin. So then I go on the page, I click and it asks for my name and email address. That's it. And then it goes to the next page and it says you can send point zero whatever bitcoin to this address so i'm like trying to figure out what should i do so i try reading the faqs right to figure it out and it said just open up coinbase and just go to your portfolio and hit send so i go to my portfolio i hit send and i kid you not it just says okay how much um bitcoin do you want to send so i just enter the exact same amount that i see on the screen right and within Coinbase, brother, it allows you to scan a QR code. So literally on your computer screen is, let's say, the Bitcoin wallet that you have to send the funds to. So then if you don't even want to type out the address, you just take out your phone, scan the QR code, and then it, it literally fills in the address for you. And then you just hit send. I did that and I was thinking to myself, how is how is this thing gonna know it's me? I like I, I'm like freaking out, right? <laughs> because I'm just sending this random thing into outer space, pretty much. Because you know how like you have your you your your name and 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 an address and all of these things, like you know, like you put in your home address and and all of these things. So then I'm like, how is how how do they even know I'm the one who sent the money? Because I'm just scanning a QR code on on a on a laptop. Anyways, within a minute or two, I receive an email. Payment received. Your tickets for the Bitcoin conference will be sent to you shortly. And I was just sitting there and I was like, Bitcoin is going to change the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Brother, absolutely. Because that transaction I did could have been done from anywhere in this world. It would have taken the exact same period of time, literally, you know, about a minute or two. And I like, it's just absolutely mind blowing. Anyways, I'm looking forward to learning a lot at this conference, continuing to share. Um, and um, I'm just happy that you know, you similar to me, we didn't just keep saying, oh, this Bitcoin thing is, <laughs> is, is like, is nothing to pay attention to because I think it's a great opportunity. But to your point, I will continue to monitor, right? Because there are a lot of crypto assets out there. Um, I know individuals in the uh, Bitcoin community, they view Bitcoin as the main coin and they view every other coin any other as they would say a shit coin <laughs> yeah that's that is their term <laughs> and it's um it's it's interesting because I, I think bitcoin is the mainstream 
but even though let's say Bitcoin does not lose its dominance in the next 20 years, which 20 years, that's, that's definitely possible, right? Yeah. Um, I think there is a space where multiple coins can be legitimate at the same time, yeah. i.e. Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Like yep. They're both mainstream now, right? I think Ethereum has made a very good case, especially because you have to use Ethereum to create NFTs. Um, so I, I think that's that's the interesting part of, of this is we're now moving from from gold, right, from digital gold, which most consider is Bitcoin, where you can't just roll up on somebody with a gold bar and say, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, we buy gold. We, we buy gold because we think the economy is crashing or whatever, but you can't do anything with it unless you're, you know, you want to make a chain or something like that. Um, but outside of that, you know, it's, I think we're going to move closer to that usability. Like, what can you use this for? Why is this useful? Why is this valuable? And I think uh, Ethereum makes a better case for it. Uh, Cardano might be a very good case three or four years from now. Um, so I'm curious, right? It could be a, a coin that comes out tomorrow that has an, another thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's it's important to be diversified and this is going to sound the opposite way. It's also important to be focused. <laughs> so, you know, I, I would say pick your three to four right now, get focused, do your research, and then, you know, then branch off into some of the other ones if you think it's it's a value. But I think the most important thing is to to do it because it makes sense, not just because it's a meme. And that's a whole different thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it makes sense. I'm 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 both glad that we weren't stubborn and stuck our heads heads in the ground and, and heels in the dirt and said, I'm never going to do this, even though the evidence has changed in front of me and the situation is completely different. Um, that I think that says a lot about a lot about you, a lot about anyone who is willing to reassess the scenario and decide like, hey, look, you know, the world has changed. I think, you know, this this might or might not be a good idea now. My brother, this was a phenomenal conversation as always. So for individuals who are interested in connecting with you and, you know, I have a special giveaway um, in a bit, but for individuals who are interested in connecting with you, you know, via social media or, you know, getting additional copies of your book, where, you know, can these individuals go to find you and and also to get uh, copies of your book? Yeah. Well, well, first, based on this conversation, I'll be accepting Bitcoin for the book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, I, I do want to figure out how to do that, though. So if y'all see me on Instagram, you'll you'll know why. Um, but you can find me on all things social media. Um, there's also a link to the book um, on my Instagram page as well. And that's um, at Building Bread on all things social media. And you can go to buildingbread.com slash blueprint um, to get the book and, and order it there. Phenomenal. And for all the listeners, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a couple of questions on Instagram. So there'll be 10 questions based on our conversation today. And for every right answer to the question, I'm going to give a copy of, of Kevin's book, Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of silence. So I'll be giving away 10 copies of the book. I'm going to post on Instagram 10 questions 
you all, you know, the first person to answer it correctly, you know, gets a free copy. I'll go ahead and mail that to you. But I don't want you to listen to this episode and stop here. This, and I've I've read the book. It's a fascinating, interesting book. Lots of incredible research. I, you know, I've been connected with with Kevin for, I'd say, pr- pretty much going on like three to four years or so that yeah, I've known no. him. Yeah. And um, I, I love the work that he does. So I want us to support him, support this book. So whether you're ordering it for yourself, whether you're ordering it as a gift to someone, or whether you're ordering it to support a brother, like I want you to do that. Okay. So then, you know, Amazon, Target, you search burning to blueprint. 